The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everybody, this is Mary Woods and I'm your host of One Hour at a Time and today we have with us Neil Powers who is an acclaimed author who wrote his first novel called Millie's Honor. Neil is a retired aviation safety inspector. He's an artist, a journalist. He's an instructor pilot, a world traveler, and a regular contributor to his hometown newspaper. And he lives in O'Fallon, Missouri. Um, Neil, you are a retired FAA, I'm sorry, aviation safety inspector and pilot. Um, I'm sure you, a lot of that had to go into your writing of letters to Millie? Oh, it really did. I uh, met so many amazing characters as I was doing uh, that work. Uh, Some of them were just hysterically funny, and some of them were tragic. Uh, But it was one of those things that uh, helped me develop the writing skill to eventually go into writing novels. Uh, Most everything I did wound up having to be written up for uh, attorneys and judges and investigators. So I spent a great deal of time writing. In your novel, um, Letters to Millie, it takes place in like the mid to late 70s, and one of the main characters is a Vietnam vet. And it seems like in the novel there are a lot of um, issues that you kind of touch on, mental illness, um, somebody coming back from Vietnam who is pretty alienated um, and dealing with his own kind of night terrors, if you will. Sure. Um, and you have a whole town that uh, embraces this man, which which may or may not have been most Vietnam vets' experiences. So, um, you know, what inspired you to write the, this novel in this time? Well, um, really it all started in uh, 2003 at a high school reunion. My high school graduated in 1963. And we were sitting around bragging about what a safe, wonderful era we grew up in and how... It lacked the dangers that we're accustomed to today. And I went along with that, and as I did, something about that didn't ring true. I uh, later went back and did research on the, in the Fulton Daily Sun-Gazette, my hometown paper, and discovered that those were horrific years in the 50s and 60s and 70s. We lived under the threat of nuclear war with the Soviet Union. We had fallout shelters all over town. Uh, we had civil rights issues that had to be resolved. Uh, and, of course, there was a granddaddy of them all in the middle of that era, and that was the Vietnam War. So part of what I wanted to do was to go back and revisit that history and tell it realistically, um, sort of as an honor to my high school graduating class and the people of that era. Your first book was called Millie's Honor. Um, can you just briefly tell us a little bit about that? I can. Uh, Millie was an English teacher, came to town in the early 50s and changed the community. 
Uh, she started teaching the kids in the school to think for themselves and uh, teaching them to write and challenging the local newspaper to quit being such a fear monger. Um, she encouraged him to start a writing contest, which grew into an annual festival. So Millie was a real uh, strong woman and a person of influence. She shaped these three young men who were friends. Uh, one of them becomes a grocer, Wally Grayson, uh, Another goes off to war, that's Raymond Thornton, and he's the Vietnam veteran character. And the third one becomes a local sheriff. And at some point beyond the war, they all wind up getting back together. Um, to help me develop the character of Raymond Thornton, I have a friend who is a Vietnam vet who gave me permission to use his combat history to develop the character. Uh, he came back with two purple hearts, a bronze and a silver star for valor, uh, shrapnel in his body, and PTSD. And did his community welcome him back? No. In fact, uh, that's one of the things that the United States got wrong. Uh, he, was in a, he was in a tunnel. They pulled him out of the tunnel and told him it was time to go back home. He helicoptered back to the main base. They put him on a 747, flew him back to McCord Air Force Base, drove him to the barracks after they dropped off their, their guns, gave him new uniforms, and told them they were now free. So in the space of less than 48 hours, these Vietnam vets coming out one by one were taken out of the war and just dropped down in the middle of modern society, which was really hot and uh, with with controversy about what are we doing in Vietnam. So poor Ted, with a bunch of travel requests, is in the SeaTac airport and uh, has some college kids start accusing him of being a baby killer. And he said, I thought at that time, well, I'm just going to have to kill him. Which he didn't do. Which he didn't do. They sensed it and left. But uh, his story was really tragic. He had two buddies who he fought with through 18 months, and they kept each other alive. They decided to buy motorcycles in Seattle and rode one of them back to Indianapolis, another one to North Carolina. Ted rode back to his hometown near St. Louis, and within six months his two buddies had committed suicide. And that's a pattern we're seeing happening right now with our Iraqi veterans and our Afghani uh, combatants. It's it's a tragedy, and I wonder why we keep repeating it. You would think by now we would know better. Well, you would. Um, it's an interesting thing. I've been doing some research, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman wrote uh, has written a book called On Combat and another one called On Killing. And one of the things he, he cites is a 1944 graph that shows that if soldiers are in the trenches with unrelenting un, uh, combat going on, by 60 days they're just pretty much in a vegetative state. And yet we just recently saw a movie called Restrepo, which was about a unit on the top of a mountain in Afghanistan for 15 months under continuous fire. Well, you think about the people that were exposed to the Battle of the Bulge or Guadalcanal or um, probably a hundred other battles, and, you know, why don't we learn from that? 
Well, there's an interesting uh, comparison between World War II. When those units came back, many of them came back on shipboard. And that meant that the guys who had been fighting together, who had been through these experiences together, had up to weeks to talk about them and, and think through them. The other part was that uh, a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor started our involvement in the Pacific, and the things that we found in Auschwitz and the uh, concentration camps in Germany gave us uh, a moral justification for having defeated Hitler. So there was this sense of accomplishment and time allowed for our combat veterans to talk about it, process it, think about it, and then to begin to focus on what they're going to do when they get back home. In Vietnam, as I said, Ted came out of a hole one day and was dropped in McCord Air Force the next day. And next thing you know, he's at SeaTac Airport trying to make sense out of the world. Which I know was a common experience for a lot of people when they came home from Vietnam. It truly was. It truly was. So it was with that notion that uh, I wrote the character of Raymond Thornton and had him go home um, a drunk, uh, all messed up, and trying to figure out how to get himself sorted out. And he reconnected with his high school English teacher, uh, Millie McKenna, who told him that he could either write or die. So with her help, he wrote a book called A Soldier's Heart that described his experiences in Vietnam. And in that time, uh, they fell in love and got married. So that was kind of the core of the first novel, Millie's Honor. Um, when I finished that book, I thought I was through. And uh, I was surprised I had friends who read the book who came to me and, and immediately stood on my toes and said, you killed Millie, and I want to know what happened to Raymond. And so... I realized that they cared so much about the characters that I needed to give them more information. And that's what's behind Letters to Millie. You know, when, when you were talking earlier about how it seemed like we grew up in a very safe time, and when I try to talk to my adult children about what that time was like, you know, I can remember, um, you know, the race riots, you know, um, the demonstrations in the South for the Civil Rights Movement. Um, Vietnam was going on, and it just, it didn't feel like a safe time. It felt like we were just exploding as a country. And, That's right. And we remember, were very polarized, too. Yeah. Do you remember, Mary, the Little Rock Nine? Mm-hmm. In 1957, it took a 1,000 troops from the 101st Airborne to escort nine scared black kids into Central High School after Governor Orville Faubus had tried to keep them from going to school. In Kent State University, where kids were going to college, and they were yeah. protesting, and kids got shot. Exactly. You know? um, and if that would happen now, I can't imagine what would happen in this country. You know, oh. and, and terrorism has been around for a really long time, and, um, you know, we, you know there, there have been forms of terrorism for a long time. Yeah, and those roots go back a long way. Um, one of the things I found useful in the book was uh, realizing that in on May 5th of 1960, Eisenhower told the country that a U-2 weather research airplane had, had a mishap and it accidentally strayed into Soviet airspace and crashed. 
Two days later, Khrushchev said, oh, by the way, we've got the pilot. His name is Francis Gary Powers, and it was a spy plane, and he was 1,300 miles inside the Soviet Union. And we've got the pictures. It was, it was bubbling to the surface that under certain circumstances, our governmental leaders weren't going to tell us the truth. Right. Uh, so, you know, then we had the CIA bungle the Bay of Pigs invasion. Uh, we had the uh, the embargo in Cuba, the Cuba missile missile crisis. Uh, Medgar Evers. Terrifying. Yeah, we we had, you know we had B fifty twos in the air with nuclear weapons and they were live. And that that went on until uh, October twenty eighth when they finally had the military stand down. Um, in June of '63, Medgar Evers, a uh, civil rights activist, was shot in the back of his home just hours before President Kennedy made an important speech on civil rights. Uh, August of '63, Dr. Martin Luther King made his famous "I Have a Dream" speech in Washington. Uh, September, the civil rights demonstrations in Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama, were in full swing, uh, and and the police commissioner. Police Commissioner Bull Connors used fire cannons and dogs on black children, and it was broadcast on TV. And then, of course, in 1963, November 22nd, our president was assassinated in in Dallas, Texas, and every one of us who lived through that moment knows where we were when we got the news. So those were the, some of the most turbulent times we ever lived through and and these were the things that affected an entire generation and i i don't mean to minimize the effect of 911 it was horrific but we have been through times like that before i think from my perspective <clears throat> looking back at those early those times you were talking about i was you know, young and in um, grammar school. And, you know, it was one thing after another, as you were just saying. You know, yes. we got to President Kennedy's assassination. Then Johnson came in and we had uh, um, the Great American Society. Then right. the next thing you knew, like the Beatles came over, and that was a whole other cultural shift. Right, yeah. And people started growing their hair long, and that was kind of a whole... Um, th- anti-establishment movement, if you will. And then Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, Martin Luther King was assassinated, and it was like every time you turned around, once you began to believe in something, it was gone. Yeah, and that was one of the the interesting things. How do you make sense out of that? Uh, One of the uh, flow charts in this book by Colonel Dave uh, Dave Grossman is uh, the whole issue of a combatant facing war for the first time. Their first concern is, am I going to be able to kill? The second thing that happens is they do it. They're forced to do it. The third thing, and the one that catches them by the surprise, is that it is exhilarating. The glee that I survived, the adrenaline rush, is a real high. And that's followed immediately by remorse and nausea. But what's really fascinating there is that there are possibilities to become fixated on, am I going to be able to kill? Possibilities about fixating on the exhilaration. And he says, if we can't make sense out of all of this, we're going to have PTSD. 
And we'll be right back to talk more with Neil Powers about uh, letters to Millie and PTSD and a generation that is probably, the whole generation suffered from some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Neil Powers, and we're talking about his novels, Letters to Millie, and we're talking about um, historical events that certainly shaped um, my generation and uh, all the trauma that we were exposed to and survived just being an American citizen during that time. And, um, Neil, maybe you could share with us, how did you become interested in post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, I didn't know what it was. Like everybody else, uh, I have found out after the fact. For 11 years in the FAA, I, one of my duties was to investigate aircraft accidents. And uh, some of them were silly and funny, but some of them were terrifically tragic, and, and the fatalities really took their toll on me. Um, one anecdote in particular that is most memorable it was a very, very foggy morning the night before an aircraft had crashed on its approach into Lambert Airport, and uh, 
I was in the accident scene with an NTSB investigator when this figure just stepped out of the fog wearing a trench coat. And he wasn't supposed to be there, and I, I turned to go intercept him, and his first question was, how bad was my daddy hurt? He identified himself as a son of the pilot. Now, the night before, I knew that his father had been burned beyond recognition. And I'm standing here trying to figure out how am I going to handle this with a, with a sensitivity that it requires. And I realized because I had some time and experience as a Stephen minister that he probably really wanted to know uh, how horrible were, were my daddy's last minutes. So I turned him around and I pointed across the street and said, can you see the notch in the trees there where the airplane came through? And he said, yes, I can. And I said, do you see the two large limbs that cross in an X right in the middle of that notch? I do. And I showed him this big log that was lying at our feet that was one of those limbs and pointed out the other one that was about 60 feet away. And he stood there and looked at the notch in the trees and realized that the fuselage hit right in the middle of those limbs. He looked at me and I said, your daddy died instantly. He just threw his arms around my neck and began to sob. And when he was done, he thanked me because he said, if what I needed to know is that daddy didn't suffer. So I had to shake that off and walk back out into the accident site and resume conducting the investigation. Um, those kinds of things came back to me in the middle of the night, years after, and they still do. So as part of the FAA, um, you know, what happens after an investigation? Um, well, my, my job was this, uh, especially with a fatality, you know, the, the, the people are dead. You can't do anything about that. You can't bring them back. So I wound up channeling my adrenaline to be very, very attentive and hypervigilant and not overlook any detail because I knew it was so critical. And it would take six months, nine months to finally get all of the facts together and to be able to, to write a uh, comprehensive summation of what took place. And generally I discovered about three months after that I became angry. I would become angry that these people died needlessly because I'd identified the stupid mistakes that led to the death. I couldn't find a place to make a difference, to change the way things happened, and I didn't know where to put that anger. I became cranky and uh, and difficult to deal with. I became very demanding of the operators. Um, and all of that was because I hadn't been able to work through the reconciliation. Did people notice a change in you? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Um, one, one of the contributing factors, I suppose, is that I had a heart attack at age 45. Uh, once I recovered from that, got my flight physical back, um, I slowly put on weight. I was caught in a situation where we had kids in school and college coming, and we needed the income, and that was my job. And yet, it was a place that I didn't want to go, things that I didn't want to do. It was pretty hard. Um, eventually, uh, my health was affected enough that I could no longer qualify for a 
flight physical. And at that point, I said, you know, I, I probably need to leave this job before it kills me. So I, I did, and uh, following that, I taught at the FAA Academy as an in- instructor and became more and more interested in mission work with our church, trying to make a difference for the folks who are living. So that's how I wound up doing a lot of traveling. In Peru, Haiti, uh, five times in Haiti, northeast India, uh, on, on mission trips. Were you ever treated for PTSD? Uh, yeah, I'm currently under treatment from PTSD. Uh, once it becomes chronic, it's hard to believe that you're ever going to get cured. Um, I talked to a psychologist to help me sort things out. Uh, I'm open with my primary care physician who uh, keeps me on antidepressants and keeps me supplied with anti-anxiety medication in case I start to have a panic attack. And to be able to sleep at night, I have to have a sleep aid. But I've reached a point where I can manage those things and live a fairly normal life. Here's my concern, Mary. When we think about these GIs who've gone through three, four, or five rotations in Iraq and they're now going off to Afghanistan, how difficult is it going to be for them to regain their equilibrium and get the help they need? Well, we know from doing other shows that um, that's variable. Some places there's really good assessments and um, there's a lot of encouragement to go for uh, treatment for PTSD. And other parts of the military, it's like it's a weakness, you know, mm-hmm. suck it up and, and keep going. So it's variable. Yes. Some people do okay and some people get the help they need and other people just don't. And, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a high suicide rate for returning veterans. and um, Right now in the United States, 20% of all suicides are returning combat veterans. Yeah. yeah so do you remember the, uh, the movie Patton mm-hmm, starring George, George C. Scott portrayed one of the problems the military has always had? There was a private in the uh, hospital tent who had no mark on him, but he just couldn't function, and... Uh, General Patton asked him what was wrong with him. He said, I just can't handle it anymore. So he slapped him and threw him out of the tent. Uh, We've had a long-time discussion about combat fatigue, battle fatigue, PTSD, and the issue really comes down to something that's really important to the VA, and that's malingering. Is this an individual who is simply trying to get a disability award from the VA or are they really troubled? And the problem here is it's pretty hard to fake a night terror. It's pretty hard to fake a panic attack. It's pretty hard to fake depression. And it's pretty hard to fake a suicide. So I've uh, spent a lot of time thinking about this. Most of the, Most of us, and I include myself, to shut down the brain and stop the memories, uh, We'll start drinking or turn to drugs. I've used alcohol to excess. Um, And if you think about substance abuse, alcoholism, as a slow form of suicide, then PTSD treatment is suicide intervention. Well, it is, and it it is for a whole host of other reasons as well. There was uh, one group of uh, doctors in the Navy that are, I guess, 
maybe it's the Army, where they're using virtual reality to um, help treat PTSD, and they've, they've developed a, a video that mimics being on patrol and having the, um, you know, the explosions that, that mm-hmm. happen when you're on patrol. And they show this to people over and over and over again, and, and they eventually become desensitized to it. They're also getting talk therapy at the same time. Yes. And other people, you know, other places are using cognitive behavioral therapy very effectively to help folks. Um, and other people, they're using, like, Indorol that will help um, keep your, um, like, your blood pressure down. And mm-hmm. and uh, so there's, I mean, there's they're trying. And I think that when you talk about trauma, like, first responders, such as yourself or EMTs mm-hmm. or, or sheriffs, um, policemen, uh, everybody can be affected. You That's know, right. nurses and doctors in the emergency room. Yeah, and... Um, and- Children who have been sexually abused and victims yep. of rape and assault. Yeah, yep. the, uh, the the yep. the key issue is to find yourself in a life and death situation, to be horrified, helpless, and filled with fear. That's where it all begins. Yeah. So it's uh, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. Well, it's it's uh, it's one of those things that there's a there's a built-in problem. I did not want to describe, for instance, to my wife and children the things that I saw when I was out investigating aircraft accidents. I couldn't tell them that. I wasn't going to traumatize them. So one of the natural reactions is not to talk about it. And if you add the military culture where no one wants to let down a buddy, no one wants to fail to fulfill a mission, no one wants to be seen as being weak, no one wants to be the cause for a mission to collapse. It becomes extremely difficult to talk about those things when the natural inclination is not anyway. So what really happens is we wind up bottling these things up and have no place to go with them, no way to release them. And in some units, uh, if they see it as a sign of weakness, someone who's suffering can't even go ask for help because of the peer pressure. Generally, it has to get to be an extreme condition after they've come home, uh, the family's affected, and it's get help or get a divorce. And we'll be right back after this next commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to The Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is One Hour at a Time, and I'm Mary Woods. Our guest today is Neil Powers, who has written a novel called Letters to Millie. And in Letters to Millie, um, what's addressed is PTSD and coming back home from Vietnam in the 70s and what that was like for one particular character. And before we went to break, um, Neil, you were talking about how important it is to have somebody to talk to, how you kept everything inside you and share it with your family and um, I started out my career as a registered nurse. I'm still a registered nurse. My mm-hmm. mother was a registered nurse, and she worked OBGYN, and I worked in the operating room. So we would come home, and we would talk about things that we had seen. Oh, of course. And we, well, unfortunately, though, we'd do it at the supper table. So my father and brother would get totally <laughs> grossed out and say, oh, we want to listen to this. Yeah. But 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 we did that every night. You know, we talked yeah. about the things that like terrified us, the things that were funny. Yeah. And whenever you get a group of nurses together, it's really the humor is really morbid. But I think sometimes that's the only way you get through it. You well, know? you know, that's where Mash came from. And it, the fact of the matter is, dark humor plays a very therapeutic role. Uh, if your body's just been flushed with adrenaline day after day after day and you can come up with some kind of a belly laugh and get some endorphins to help damp that down, it makes all the difference in the world. Uh, so flight instructors sometimes did that too. Uh, one of the old gags was there are four basic maneuvers of flight, stall, spin, crash, and burn. <laughs> it's kind of that dark humor that you're describing that the nurses had. Yeah. I think but, um, it's, it's interesting that... Um, when you were sharing your experience, how some of that comes out in Millie's in letters to Millie, and I'm just wondering how did your own experience influence your writing of the book? 
Well, you know, it was kind of uh, unconscious to begin with. I I knew exactly what uh, Raymond Thornton was dealing with because it was the same kind of thing that my friend Ted was dealing with. And when he were he and I were finally able to talk about PTSD, uh, he's the one who turned to me and said, do you realize the experiences you had investigating those aircraft accidents were really combat experience? You were in combat. And it was at that point that he and I were able to talk to each other and start putting some of our burdens down. Um, so it was that was kind of the insight behind writing uh, the novel. And uh, there's a point at which he's he's just ready to fall off the face of the earth, and Millie tells him, "Write or die, Raymond. You're a writer. Write." Or die, and uh, it's one of the ways we can reach out for help. Some people journal. Uh, in my case, I guess I was writing, trying to address part of this. Um, in in letters to Millie, uh, a long term enemy named Brick Donovan, who is a psycho, uh, set. Uh, Millie's house on fire, and Millie died in the fire, and now Raymond, a PTSD victim from Vietnam, is trying to cope with the death of Millie at the end as a violent act. And, and if I may, I, I'd like to read just a short section here that kind of portrays what he was experiencing. During the weeks before, when he had been trying to kill himself slowly with scotch, no one could reach him, not even Meredith. Then two things happened to break through his depression. A dog showed up. Raymond called him Tracker, short for extraction. The two became inseparable. Tracker loved the snow. The second was a visit he had from Millie during late January. In the hours before dawn, he had wandered down to the dock with a bottle of scotch in hand. He became too drunk to walk, so he watched the sunrise from the dock. He sat in an Adirondack chair and waited for daylight to clear his head. The lake was still, the water the color of pewter. Fog hovered above it and the sunlight slid down the hill, gradually burning the fog away. At daybreak, Raymond thought he heard Millie's voice calling to him across the, rock, the water. Right, Raymond? Right or die, he heard her say. Raymond was never certain whether it had been a dream. His head said it was a memory, but his heart said Millie was there. But it was the same thing she told him years before when he was grieving for his lost army buddies. Because of her, he wrote a soldier's heart. Somewhere along the way, Raymond and Millie fell in love. In honoring those who had died, he became whole again. He stayed on the dock as long as he could stand the cold, but he heard no more. Numb from frostbite, he finally went inside. He tried to make coffee, but his fingers felt like wood. He got water running in the sink and stuck his hands in, and soon they felt like they were on fire. He made coffee and tore open the drawers looking for a pen or a pencil. He had no tablets, only paper bags from the Piggly Wiggly. Hours later, he would realize he had cut his hands, fumbling with his penknife. Words did not come easily. He just wrote what he wanted to say to Millie. It was the first of many love letters. 
I think that this book is very compelling on a lot of um, on a lot of different levels. Even the um, the person who's the most troubled in the book, Rick Donovan, he himself has had a very traumatic childhood and um, has probably been exposed to his to a lot of different things as well. So it seems like trauma runs through is a theme throughout the whole book. Well, I think you're right. Um... One of the things I decided to do was to use the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual of the American Psychological Association to develop the personalities of these characters. And one of the reasons I did that, Mary, is that many of the novels I read, uh, detective novels, the characters are rather two-dimensional. Some of action novels don't get into very much character development. Others do a pretty good job of character development, but later on the characters act out of uh, out of consonance with their personality. So I wanted to get a mental picture of who these people were, how they got the way, and uh, how that would influence what they do. So this is one of the few novels, I suppose, where there's been a uh, psychological profile made on virtually all of the primary characters. You ought to see my mind maps. Oh, I bet that's really interesting. <laughs> it's um, just a strange, methodical way that I work. That kind of, this is a totally um, unrelated question in some ways, but when you do an FAA investigation, do you look at a psychological component of yes. the person? Yes, in fact, uh, Looking at the last 24, 48 hours gives us quite an insight. You know what what kind of dilemmas were they dealing with in their in their personal lives? Uh, what, what were their movements? What were their actions? Were they sleeping? Were they under stress? All of those things do become uh, part of the analysis, and many appear in the final report as contributing factors. I know there was a man here in New Hampshire who was going through um, a divorce that he did not want. And he took his small plane and flew it into the house that his estranged wife and daughter were living in. Well, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a tragedy. There were signals all over the place, and people didn't get them. Uh, when I was in Wichita in the middle 80s, I took training in Stephen Ministry, which is a combination of pastoral care and basic psychology counseling. And and one of the things we were trained in was suicide interventions. And I I went through that module thinking, oh boy, I really don't want to know this, but we're going to go through the training anyway. And suddenly having completed that training, I found myself having done now about six or eight suicide interventions. Um, One of the things is that a person has to feel that there absolutely is no future. I have nothing to look forward to. I'm all alone. I don't have anyone who cares for me. I'm not worthy of being loved. I can't love, so I might as well throw the big switch. And one of the key elements of suicide intervention is to expose those lies. You know, look, I'm a total stranger, and I'm here, and I'm not leaving. We're going to figure this out. Uh, You mean to tell me that there can never, ever be another time where you can laugh and smile or be happy? And another part of it is we have to diffuse and remove the uh, the glamour from
from the suicide. I mean, we have to come to fact, come to the facts that somebody's going to find you. Who's that going to be, and how is that going to affect them? And do you want to inflict that on them? And if we can take apart the fantasy, frequently those things can happen. So there had to be some way somebody could have seen those signals. And if they could have just had a, a minute, a half an hour, an hour with this guy, the outcome might have been so different. What a tragedy. Well, and, you know, you think about the man who flew the airplane into the IRS building in, was it Oklahoma City? Yeah. You know, I, I think it was in Texas. Austin, in Texas. was it? Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, was that an act of terrorism or was it an act of, you know, suicide? It was it, it was an act of uh, suicide. He, he, had, he had economic problems. He had uh, business problems. He had emotional problems. And he targeted the federal government, and that IRS office was where he aimed his, his missile. And, you know, the same... Same pattern happens with Timothy McVeigh in the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. I mean, McVeigh is mad at the U.S. government as an abstraction, and what he does is blow up a a nursery, a preschool. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, had somebody been able to engage those people, somehow open them up, find out what they're thinking and feeling, uh, validate the feelings and redirect them and get them some help, those things could be inverted. And we'll be right back with our final segment of Letters to Millie and with our novelist, Neil Powers. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. What a-
it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, Our guest today is Neil Powers. And he is the author of a novel called Letters to Millie, which I recommend. It's a really good read. And it's a novel about um, a small town in the Midwest and uh, three men who grew up there, one of whom is a Vietnam veteran who has returned and trying to make sense of the world. And this, I guess as we, we should say that this is a very hopeful novel, even though some of the things we're talking about are not very hopeful. But um, a lot of people came through the 60s and survived and went on and did good things. And um, I think that there's there was a lot of resilience in the world at that time as well, and there were a lot of people that were resilient. And um, we wanted to underscore that. Um, the other thing I think it's important to talk a little bit more about is you were talking earlier about the power of writing and yes. sometimes when you have all this bottled up inside of you, a lot of people, for whatever reason, do not want to go talk to someone else. But writing can really be a first step to letting it out. Yes, it, it, that's, a, that's a true statement. You know, we do this all the time. Uh, we'll be sitting at night and we'll have an idea come to us, oh, I need to take care of this tomorrow. So we'll write it down and put it on a piece of paper on the nightstand next to the bed, and we can sleep and forget about it because we've written it down. And we know that it's in our notes, it's in our calendar for tomorrow. Well, one of the things we can do with these things that are troubling is to write honestly about our feelings, our reactions, uh, what took place, what we saw, how it affected us, what questions it raised, and in a way you can set that aside for a while and it doesn't consume you. It's not an obsession anymore. It's something that you can come back to later when you gain new information. So the ability to write down uh, these these issues, to journal it through, is really very helpful. Um, I, I had my character do that in the novel, but in real life I was doing that. Um, probably the process of writing letters to Millie was one for me of opening up PTSD and how it happens and how we manage it and how we deal with it. And finally, in the end, it comes down to the fact that unconditional love and acceptance from friends and family, support and encouragement can help you get over those things. That doesn't mean you don't need the professional help. But it's 
impossible to do if you feel estranged and isolated and have no place to turn to and no one to talk to and no one to put your arms around. And I think that's the root of everything, of all healing, is unconditional love. I I don't think that there can be enough of it. Um, When I was in nursing school, the hospital that I trained in, we um, experienced a, a major flood, and we were like two blocks from the river, and it took like three days for the water to go down and for us to be able to get out. And I can remember when we were driving out of the city, maybe six blocks from the hospital where the floodwaters hadn't been, it was a Sunday, and people were grilling in the backyard. They were in their swimming pools. It was like nothing happened. And oh, we my. We gone through this traumatic experience. That yes. The Army had to come in and airlift people off the roof. And it oh, was yeah. like, it was so hard to, to say, I've just been through this three days of hell, and now there are people that are so disenf- just disengaged from the process. And I can remember coming home, and I was like 18 or 19, and going out to one of the local bars, and people were making jokes about, oh, well, did you swim home, and yeah. all these things, and it was like, I, that was the first time I said, this must be what it's like for the guys coming back from Nam, because right. nobody got it, nobody right. got what I experienced, and um, and that that gave me a lot more compassion yeah. I think, no. for the guys that were coming back, but it was just, people just don't get it. One of the one of the uh, agencies that Mary and I support is Edge Outreach, and they install water treatment systems, portable water treatment systems, all over the world. And they've installed about thirty in Haiti since the earthquake. But those teams were in there for a week, ten days at a time, having seen the trauma that goes on when buildings collapse on people, and they come back out of this disaster zone to the well-groomed lawns of uh, manicured suburbia. And as you say, people are grilling and barbecuing. And it's this otherworldly feel that makes you question your own sanity. And, of course, not everyone can have that experience, but it it really is a cultural shock to move back and forth between a disaster scene and ordinary daily life. It is, and, and you wonder, well, did I really experience it? Was it really that bad? Because here are these people, they're in the same town, and they're having a grand old time. I mean, it really does make you question. Yeah, yourself, well, you know. that that's especially true for combat veterans. Uh, one of the things that has been observed is they get distortion of senses. For instance, under intense fire, they may lose all sense of sound, and their vision may become extremely acute. There have been reports of guys looking through the scopes late at night, and suddenly the scope lights up like somebody turned on the lights. And it's just simply the brain saying, well, I'm going to take the light we have and amplify it so we can see what he has to do. And when all of those things are done, you got this poor GI standing back saying, what just happened to me, and am I crazy? And those are the stories where they all begin by, you won't believe this, but but those are the things that do happen to us because of the nature of our human body. The mind has the ability to exclude unimportant things and focus on essential things, and, and it distorts our, our sense of, of time and place. And it's probably one reason we've survived as a species. It is. It's a survival technique. And you know, the fact of the matter is uh, the folks who have it developed PTSD have simply acclimated to an environment. They've done what they've had to do to shut down the emotional pain by not opening up to it anymore. 
and they can be uh, helped out of that. And oddly enough, I think one of the simplest therapies is to find somebody who's suffering from that uh, and tell them to go down to the local animal shelter and pick out a dog or a cat and get some unconditional love. Um, very quickly, Neil, how can people get letters to Millie and how can they get in touch with you? Letterstomillie.com is my website and I have a contact point there. Uh, my email address is neilrider1 at charter.net. N-E-A-L-W-R-I-T-E-R, the number one, at charter.net. And but the where's, easiest, the, where's the book being sold? Uh, the book is uh, available through Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, online, in bookstores. Uh, but the easiest way to connect is letterstomillie.com. Thank you so much for being a guest, and I'm looking forward to your third novel. Well, thank you. Now I've got a challenge, don't I, Mary? It's yes, been a pleasure sure. talking to you. Okay. Got to find out what happens to Bud. Okay. Good. All right. Okay. Have Bye a good now. week, everybody. Bye. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.